Hello, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a classical podcast put on by classical educators. Uh, this is Thomas Magby, joined, as always, by Mr. A.J. Hannenberg. That's me. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hoy hoy. Hoy hoy? Hoy hoy. What is that? Oi. <laughs> I'm not helping. That, that didn't answer the question. <laughs> I think the que- wait, hold on. <laughs> hey, um, so today, uh, Graham Donaldson, you're going to be talking to us a little bit about uh, romanticism. That's right. Yeah. Which is kind of a, an interest, a strange thing to have on a classical education podcast because, in many ways, romanticism is almost the opposite of classic classicism, or the Romantic movement of the 19th century, which we're going to be talking about. Um, was something that was up and oppo- uh, was opposed to, if you wanted to call it, the end of the Enlightenment or rationalism or neoclassicism, as it's often called. So romanticism is a sort of reactionary movement to the Enlightenment. Um, a- anyway, so yes, it's maybe a little strange to have in a classical podcast because romanticism was undoing a lot of of the things that the classical education had grown into classical movement had grown into Europe over throughout the enlightenment. But anyway, we'll get there. Um, but, and this is also a really big, uh, catch all this is to call something romantic or to call something uh, from romanticism is this huge catch all. We're really only going to be talking about a small, um, uh, narrow, uh, uh, area of romanticism and one that C.S. Lewis himself really grabbed hold to and used to talk about his own conversion and just sort of the natural world. Um, there's different kinds of, of romanticism uh, conversations you can have. The continental romanticism like in Germany was called romanticism because it was a move back to the Middle Ages. So a move away from the world of Greece and Rome to be looking at, to rediscovering the heritage of the Middle Ages, the romance of chivalry, so which is why it was called Romanticism. Um, and then Romanticism in England, which we're going to be talking a lot about, was in reaction to industrialism and, um, and the embrace of the individual, the individual genius. Uh, but the way that I talk about this with our kids, with our students, is to talk about um, the experience that a lot of the poets who wrote romantic poetry had of the natural world. And it's kind of almost like even an uncomfortable thing to talk about because there is this human phenomena. C.S. Lewis was convinced that all people felt this. Um, The romantic poets write as if all people have felt this. But there's kind of these experiences that one can have in their life where they just have this transcendental moment of beauty where something that you use normally, commonly mundane and ordinary seems to hit somebody, you in full force, and you have this moment where like time stops and the world feels drenched in being more real and there is this feeling of, the way that C.S. Lewis describes it, it's this feeling of contentment. Ah, this is what I wanted. But then also this feeling of extreme longing. There's this more real out there that I want that I don't have, and my heart sort of longs for it. Wasn't the longing sort of the the byproduct of having the feeling, but having it briefly fade away, and it fades away, and then you think, how can I keep this? How can I stay? That's right. So in the moment, it's sort of this moment of the soul feeling like it's it's at home, and then it fades, and then you have this intense longing to have that back again, and. There's different terms for it, 
and different poets talk about it in, uh, in different ways. There's like a German word for it that Lewis uses in his own autobiography. But the term that we use for it in English class, just to give it some sort of shorthand term, is one that all kids who go through my 10th grade class are familiar with, and we just call it deep joy. Um, it's did, take, you, did you get that phrase from somewhere? I got it from um, Milton, who talks about the deep joy of Eden. Uh, and Lewis himself makes reference to calling it the deep joy of Eden. And so just for lack of a better term, just to, so we all know what we're talking about, I've just called it deep joy. If you Google deep joy, if you go deep joy romanticism, you're not going to find anything. Um, but this is just sort of my term to talk about this phenomenon. Um, transcendental experience of A transcendental of beauty experience of beauty. But that's sort of like for 10th graders. So... Uh, we just call it deep, deep joy. joy yeah. um, so if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's own biography, he felt this when he was a young child. He was sick in bed, and his brother, to cheer him up, brought him a mason jar lid that he had turned upside down, filled with moss, and made a tiny little like forest, and gave it to Lewis to try to cheer him up. And Lewis, when he got this, he just sort of had this strong joy and desire like he just wanted to live in that tiny perfect little garden mm -hmm. on the lid he just wanted to be small and fill this little mossy damp green place and just live there in this pastoral beauty and his heart just longed for this sort of thing um later in life lewis was walking the halls of his boarding school i think and he passed by an english class and he heard somebody reading poetry out loud and he didn't know the poet and he didn't know anything about the story and all he heard was somebody say, Balder the Beautiful is dead, is dead. And Lewis didn't know who Balder the Beautiful was. Um, but uh, he, really, he recognized that it was coming from Norse mythology because he had sort of heard about Balder before. But he said just in passing that classroom and hearing that line of poetry read, he just wanted to go to that world. He just wanted to go live in the world of Vikings and gods and ships and snow and north and... Um, and, and know who Balder was and why did he die. And he just sort of had this moment of longing to go to a different place. You can see this pop up in his Narnia books, right? Um, Lewis, in fact, actually dedicated his life to becoming a uh, expert in Norse mythology. We often forget that he yeah. was one of the world-leading experts on, on the mythology of the, of, of Nor the Norwegian people, of, of, of the Vikings. Um, and he admits that part of doing this, why he did this, was because he wanted to recapture that feeling that he had felt. When he was a young man, he had this feeling of contentment. And then it faded, and he chased it. And he wanted to find that feeling of contentment. Did, did he find it again? Well, he, do, he does, but not the thing itself. Hmm. And we'll, we'll talk about Lewis's conclusions about this uh, in a little bit. Um, different poets in the Romantic movement, especially the British poets, write, write about this. William Wordsworth is is the uh, um, um, Wordsworth and Keats are kind of the two poets that we can we associate with this with this feeling. Wordsworth in his famous poem Tintern Abbey, um, uh, when he was a young man, he went on a walking tour of the Lake District of England by himself, and he sat on this hill, and he overlooked this beautiful pastoral scene. And in it, he saw this ruined church called Tintern Abbey um, and this little house that had smoke rising from a chimney. And as he just sat there, he had this feeling of all in all, was sort of what he describes. He had this feeling of everything, that his heart longed to stay and live and just drink deeply of nature. And then the moment passed and 
William Wordsworth was sort of animated by this passion and this feeling, and he wanted he went back to the city, went back to his life, and he just was haunted with this idea. And next, you know, he got another opportunity to go back to the Lake District and go to Tintern Abbey. And he went up to the hill and he sat down and, you know, it was the same kind of day. And he was like, all right, like, hit me. Wait. And he just sat there looking at the church, waiting for the feeling to come back. And then nothing. And, then nothing. Yeah. and he didn't have it. And he was tremendously distraught. This thing that he had built up thinking he would have, this experience he would have, he didn't have it. And so he decided, to make a long story short, that he would try to crystallize the feeling in his poetry. If he could just write about it, if he could just try to capture what that feeling was in his poetry perfectly, then he could have it. He could, you know, put lightning in a jar. He could have it in words. He could go back. He could experience it. And he never really does. And, and so Wordsworth, the young man poet, is, is longing and haunted by this experience of beauty and trying to get it back and really wanting it. And then Wordsworth, the old man, I think he becomes like a crotchety conservative member of parliament, right? <laughs> like he just sort of, you know, uh, he becomes kind of this, this grouchy, crusty British guy. Mm -hmm. But he had these, these feelings of, of, of desiring to have this feeling flood back to him and he never, he never gets it. Um, um, and um, another poem that he writes, um, Intimations of Immortality, he talks about like, when we were born, we are these like little bundles that just love experiencing the world of nature. And then as we get older, the world kind of drains us of this and, um, and we lose it. And we sort of, um, we, yeah, and there's sort of this idea that almost like this negative view of maturity, that the older you get, the sort of worse you get, and everything was better when you were young. Do you agree with that? No, I don't. Oh, okay, good. Um, uh, I think that it's possible, uh, Chesterton writes about this, mm -hmm. that as we grow, like when we're young, we have this idea of magic. Mm -hmm. And as we grow, we think about magic, but what we forget is that the world is a magical place. Mm -hmm. Because we have seen rivers doing the things that rivers do and plants doing the things that plants do, we forget that it is insane magic that we can put a small bean in the ground and a plant comes out of the sure. ground after attaching and then eats sunlight and gives us food. Like that is, that is insanity. And it is only by the dullness of repetition that we have forgotten that the world is completely filled with magic. Mm -hmm. And when we say things like he does this by instinct, instinct is a word meaning we have no idea how they do this thing, right? right? Birds fly south on instinct, which means Magic. we have no idea how birds fly south. They just keep on doing it, and we don't understand how. So we call why. it instinct. So we call it instinct. Yeah. Right. When really it's kind of magic. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for my a lot of the 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 conclusions that the romantic poets make about human nature and human life, I I do take issue with, and I think they're kind of wrong. Yeah. Um. But <clears throat> but they all but they do die. They do see a problem that that their world presented to them. And as we said, the, 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 the romanticism grew out of this world that had become very formulaic, very scientific. Um, uh, in our English class, we have a catechism that I make the kids say every, the beginning of every single class. It takes about six minutes. It, start, it started off taking eight, but now they're pretty good at it. It takes six. And when we talk about romanticism, we say that it is a reactionary movement to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment began to reduce man to merely a thinking thing. Mm -hmm. The romantics remind us that man is not a thinking thing, but a thing that loves. So th that to me sort of crystallizes what the romantic movement did. It kind of reminded us that human beings are not just machines in bodies, 
which the Enlightenment had kind of reduced us to, but that we are feeling things as well. The problem with the Romantics is that they took that feeling thing as either the only thing or they sort of took it too far and said that man was just a wild animal uh, that just reacted on, on instincts. Um, and that, that's wrong. Anyway, um, so, um, but this feeling of deep joy to sort of trace how, what Lewis does with it. Um, so most of the Romantic poets have this feeling. Um, so Wordsworth could never get it back. He could never write poetry that, that gave it to him. And he kind of ends up being sad as he gets older. There are some, t- some tragedies that happen in his life. He has some children who pass away early. He, and he sort of has these poems, uh, one of his poems, Elegiac Stanzas, where he really kind of sees, seems to be saying goodbye to deep joy, like goodbye to that feeling, I'm never gonna get you back. World, the world is too painful for the, for the beauty of nature to penetrate kind of thing. Um, and then there are different poets who are romantic poets who would talk about this, but like Coleridge, Wordsworth's friend, Coleridge is a poet who, when he talks about the passions of nature and sort of the betrayal of you feel this thing, but then it fades away, he kind of gets angry with it. And he tries to fill that void with other things, and he actually ends up becoming a drug addict, an opium Mm -hmm. addict. Um, And um, students easily and quickly ascribe to Coleridge like punk rock status in my class because he's following that same kind of trajectory. There's wild, passionate intensity. He wants to drink deep of life. The things that he felt when he was young, he's losing those feelings as he gets older, and he tries to fill that void with something. Yeah. In his case, it's substances, and he becomes sort of this this sort of washed out um, old dude. Or no, he doesn't. He washed out, um, you know, sort of shell of himself. Keats, who talks about these wild, passionate feelings coming from nature and art. For Keats, deep joy came to him through art. Um, uh, uh, dies really young. Mm. And so I tell my students, he kind of died before he got sad. So he was kind of like in the throes of wild, passionate, romantic youth, and then he died. Mm. So he never got the chance to sort of write the poems about how nature betrayed him, like how Wordsworth does. Um, and then, um, uh, and then there's other, and then I sort of controversially add William Butler Yeats into our Romanticism unit, even though he's about 70 years later. Um, But I really, I think he deserves to be fit in as one of these sort of last Romantic poets of the modern age. Anyway, we don't need to talk about Yeats. There's a whole other podcast on him because I love him. Yeats. Yeats. Sorry. Um, But so all of these Romantic poets, um, their uh, their relationship with deep joy and, and Romanticism is that they felt this, their hearts resonated with it, and to their credit, they kind of dedicated their lives to try to get it back. They became poets. They became uh, people who were chasing after the feeling. I don't know enough about romanticism in music to know if this is true of a Beethoven who is in that era of dedicating your, your life to try to get this, this feeling back. But it is definitely true in the arts, um, and it is definitely true in, in, in poetry. These men and women who dedicated their, their lives to try to conjure this feeling back it's like you see a beautiful animal and it runs away and now you're trying your best to coax it out of the woods again and it's not coming. Lewis had the same trajectory and he felt it and he too dedicated his life to try to get this feeling back. He began to study the books and literature through which he felt this. He wanted to write his own stories. Uh, he wanted to be a creative force that could write his own stories to get this back. 
But he never did, or he didn't until his conversion. He, he, he was sort of frustrated at this. But instead of just falling into sadness like, like a Wordsworth, he asked himself the question, it, it sort of, it bothered his, his, his reason, because he said, there is a human phenomena that these poets write about that I myself have experienced where my heart for a moment desired more than the world had. And then it faded and I didn't have it. Either I just had this psychedelic experience that is meaningless, but he didn't like that solution, or the, my heart is, wants more than the world can offer it. And if that is true, then I am made for a different play. I am made for something more than just this world. You're now, talking about uh, the weight of glory. That's here. right. Now, C.S. Lewis himself, this, this did not make him a Christian. This didn't even make him a theist. But this was the first step on his conversion, was that he said, there is a hunger in my soul that is not satisfied by anything that I have found on earth. My soul must be made for something beyond earth, beyond the world. And he began to think of this world as like a shadow lands, a sh uh, uh, that this world is like a turned down version of what it should be. Um, and isn't that reflected in a lot of Eastern religions? Yeah, it right? is. That, that mm -hmm. the world is an illusion yeah. or that it's not as it should be. And, and the reason why it's reflected in those religions cause, is because they're people too, right? Yeah, and they've exactly. had they have experience. the same experience. Yeah. And, um, but the answer does not come with, well, keep looking. Yeah. Um, but for Lewis, the answer came uh, with the idea that um, the world has fallen. Mm. And those little moments of deep joy is like the heart getting to return to prelapsarian Eden for a second wow. to remind you that you want something more. And so for Lewis, that, yeah, began, so in comes Tolkien, his, his good friend and, and sort of uh, a good Catholic man, comes in and begins to talk to Lewis about um, uh, the fact that this is the soul's desire for heaven and then, uh, and that Christ is myth made history and his... Yeah, because C.S. Lewis says, isn't Jesus Christ just a myth like any other myth? And he says, maybe we have myths, but one of them is true, true. right? One is an archetype that mm -hmm. all of the myths are trying to reach for. And Jesus is this myth, real myth. Mm -hmm. And that kind of yeah. now, blows Lewis's mind. Lewis's conversion is not just one from deep joy. It was almost the, the, the emotion or the feeling or the experience that got him wanting something spiritually deeper than just what the world had to offer. And then he had all sorts of other questions that had to be answered that don't really pertain to romanticism. Um, but... The uh, but in our yeah so in so that is what we talk about in in our tenth grade English class when we talk about romanticism that the, that the human person has this capacity and these experiences of beauty that ignite the heart wanting it uh, causing it to desire more and that the world is a, is not a satisfactory place and those who anyway so I I tell my students that like. There is only one, if you follow that desire honestly, there's only one place that it will lead you to, and that is God. But so, but everybody else, but most people like don't follow that honestly. They think it's from mm. something else. And so they, they think that the that. medium is the yes. source. Yeah. So, um, so they worship the, the medium. Like they feel it through a sunset. So they watch sunset every night and, mm -hmm. it, and they don't get it back. back. 
Yeah. So same I, with nature, same with women, same with whatever you mm-hmm. feel it through. So I tell my, so in the catechism, uh, I say, what is the error of the romantics? And the, what they say is, if I can remember it, the romantics misplaced their affections. The soul's deep, joyful resonance with nature was designed to point ourselves back to its God, our source. They fell in love with the means as opposed to the end. So they fell in love. So it's Lewis, the error of uh, mm-hmm. polytheism, right? They or pantheism. They put the god in the nature rather than. Yeah. So Lewis says that nature is separate. a signpost pointing to God, and what he means is not just the intricacy of its creation, which is true, but also our experience of the world both excites us and dissatisfies us, and that excitement and dissatisf- dissatisfaction points our souls to God, what we actually want and what we were actually made for. And in many ways, the, the, the following after our own desires um, in, our, uh, in this world is an attempt to fill that void that we have felt with other things. So we, in our Romanticism unit, we read Byron because Lord Byron is somebody that tried to fill that void with women. And, par- and sort of like the life of a rover and women in parties. And then he got to the point where um, it wasn't fulfilling him anymore. And so he decides to go die gloriously in war. And he does. <laughs> uh, and all the women of Europe like mourn his death. <laughs> um, and then Coleridge, who tries to fill that void with drugs. And yes, these are kind of, I am kind of oversimplifying these men's lives for the students to talk about this point. Um, But I don't think it's a a completely unfair simplification. Coleridge Mm -hmm. did do drugs because he was sad. Wordsworth (laughs) does get grouchy because he doesn't have joy anymore. The women do love Byron. The women love Byron, and Byron kind of goes off. um, um, uh, Lewis finds God. William Butler Yeats realizes at the end of his life that he wants to sing these songs of deep joy in heaven, you know, Mm -hmm. to read the uh, Sailing to Byzantium. And I think C.S. Lewis would say would say that once he had found the true source of this beauty, then it probably infused all of the other things that he did, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to pull the beauty out of ancient literature, he could read ancient literature knowing whence the beauty came and experience it maybe a little more. Seek ye first the kingdom of God yeah. and these things will be added unto you. But the opposite is, is if you seek these added things, you'll miss them and the kingdom of God, mm. right? And so I think, yeah, so Lewis definitely, when, later in his life, he says that when he realized that Christ was what he wanted, and Christ is who he's got, that does animate and recast all of these books. And so it is no longer a search of a starving man. Um, It is somebody who can go back and can uh, read these things uh, with delight and joy, being on the inside of the story as opposed to on the outside trying to get inside. Does that make sense? A couple of questions. Yes. First, Mm -hmm. maybe not a couple of questions, but one question. When was your experience? So What was was yours? So... Lewis, when he talks about this, he definitely even says, like, I am embarrassed to even write this down because... I'm hinting at a thing that we've all experienced that can't be put into words. That, that, but also, like, to young Lewis, having that little toy was this moment of beauty and desire. And if you said, but dude, it's just a mason jar with moss in it, it would hurt. It would wound him because it's true. It is just a mason jar with moss, but it's also, you don't, you still don't understand me, man. (laughs) Um, Right. So I even like shuddered to put into words my experience of it, but I had an experience of it when I was about like 19, 18 or 19 at camp. Uh, And I worked for eight summers at Northland Bible Camp 
Woo. And um, uh, it was 10 hours away from Toronto, so I didn't go home on the weekends. So oftentimes I was at camp by myself or with other people on the weekend, and there's no campers. And it was, a, I think it was a Friday night, and all the campers had left, and I had done a day's work, and so I was tired, and it had been a hot day. And I laid in bed with the window open, because a little wood cabin, no air conditioning, I just laid in bed with the window open. And then it started to rain, and you had the sound of the rain on the wooden roof, and then you had that smell of, like, wet forest. So this cool air of wet green forest smell blew in the window. And then the cabin was sort of on top of this hill, and down in the bottom was the lake. And in the, very, in the distance of this rainstorm, I heard the call of a loon. We don't have loons in Texas, but if you Google loon call, it's sort of this sad, warbly um, uh, bird, um, almost like a, a sort of a mournful cry. And as I was laying there, I heard this loon and the rain and the smell, and I just had that moment where I was just so, like, AJ, almost what you were talking about uh, last podcast, like just happy to be alive, or mm. we were talking about with um, the, the Ray care, Bradbury. Cares and vanity are stripped away. And I was actually yeah. thinking that might be one of the reasons it's easier when you're young. The, exactly, the world yeah. is ho- full of hope, full mm-hmm. of future. Anything could happen. Yeah. You maybe haven't developed the same jadedness or Jaded whatever. complexes mm-hmm. that you deal with when you're an adult, the same vanities, the same knowledge of and maybe just the repetition hasn't beaten your sense of joy out of mm. you. But you're older enough that it's not just like, I flippin' love ice cream. Mm. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, uh, <laughs> Candy tastes so good. <laughs> yeah. It's, so you have, yeah. So I, that's why it sort of hits you in your youth. Um, and I just had that moment and then like a mosquito buzzes in your ear and it's gone and then, you know, whatever. Yeah. But you know, I've laid in bed and I've had rainstorms and I've heard birds before and it never, never comes back. Um, and then, and I didn't. Put two, I, I sort of thought about it, and I was just like, man, I love camp, was the, rea- was the thought that I had. Yeah. Um, and then in my mind, I was like, if I could just live at camp my entire life, I would be happy. Mm. And I was even planning my life. I'm going to take over camp. I'm going to live in northern Ontario, take over camp, because that's where I'm happy. Um, and then I started, and then in college, I was reading Romanticism and really was reading Lewis, and I was like, oh, man. I can't be happy at camp. I mean, I can, but not in the way that I think I'm going, I want to be. Because if you start working at camp, you realize that you have to figure out the food budget exactly. and you have and then to deal with kids with problems and you have to deal with counselors who don't obey the rules and you have to. And it's not like, it's not that camp that I wanted. It's that moment. Yeah. And so reading Lewis and then I myself was convinced by his argument that it is the desire for heaven that you have. Mm-hmm. And then, which is tremendously freeing because I don't have to. You don't have to be at that camp. I don't have to be at that camp. I can, I'm with Christ everywhere, right? <laughs> Anywhere. So, um, but that was, yeah, that was that moment there. And it's kind of, you know, in, I, I even tell it to the class. Um, and every year there are kids who are like, that's stupid. I don't feel stuff. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then every year there, and then there's like a couple of kids. And I can just see it in their eyes. They're like, they even come up and they're sheepish. They're like, Donaldson. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had one student last year who was embarrassed. She said, Donaldson. I had that experience in a Randall's parking lot. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but I tell my students, yeah, okay, fine. You're not, you say you don't have it, it'll hit you one day. And I had a student a number of years ago who was like, that's stupid, I don't feel things. And then he came back as a junior and it was during like the parent-teacher welcome day where like the new 10th graders sort of shyly come in. They're like, I'm in your class now. And you're like, cool. And you shake their hands. Um, he burst in the doors and he's like, Donaldson, and he got kind of sheepish. He's like, I, I felt deep joy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you did. So good. And he's like, I was in my hammock mm. 
And I was looking at the sky, and like a cicada started buzzing. And I just had that, and he was describing it, and he was getting embarrassed. And I was like, I told you, man. I told you. Anyway, so yes, that is that is experience. What about you, Berg? Uh, I've had a few, and I remember two really vividly. One was at a a lake in Canada, mm-hmm. and I was sitting there. Yeah, and the yeah. lake was yeah, beautiful, of course and it was. the day was perfect. And I was like, man, nature is beautiful. And I felt I felt this strange eternity creep up on me. Like this is this moment can stretch forever. It was, it was, it was odd. It was deep joy. And I've had the same thing. And this is going to sound really funny, but in high school, when I was driving my old 79 Ford Fairmont, it was this boxy flesh colored nightmare of a vehicle that the exhaust pipe was rusted through and it would shoot exhaust straight into the cabin. I had no idea, but I just knew I got headaches and a little (laughs) at any given moment, three of the six cylinders were like clogged with oil because oil leaked into the spark plugs. Like it was a bad car but it was my car yeah. <laughs> and I had the windows down and it was sunny and I was driving next to a golf course and it was just my cares fell away. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm honest, I had a little bit of that feeling at the beginning of this podcast when you started talking about it. Yeah, I, you did. I, I, I don't know if it was a complete deep joy, but I'm hitting, sitting here. It's beautiful outside. I'm with my friends. I'm not worrying about the things that I have to do. Right. And weirdly, I think many of God's commands are aimed at returning us to this experience, yes. right? Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has, tomorrow has the care, today its has own cares, cares right? Today has enough cares. And he is trying to di- help us to divest ourselves of the vanity and self-concern and anxiety. worry and anxiety and all of these things that can steal that joy and return us to a, a joy. And we can never keep it because we can never be totally sinless, right? But I think that he is trying to get us back to that place. Mm-hmm. The, like, I, I think I've said this in the podcast before, I never understood how the psalmist could say, I love your commands, mm. right? Especially because the commands in the Old Testament don't seem like, <laughs> seem lovable. Life-giving, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. But, but I get it now. At, and I only got it, I think, at 31, when I was like, he is trying to make us free, right? That is the goal of every command in scripture. He is trying to give us freedom and beauty, especially freedom from ourselves. And... The more I try to embrace that, the more I feel deep joy. And I wanted to bring up one other student mm-hmm. student who came up to me and told me when she had experienced deep joy, every year my house puts on a dance. Oh, the stag dance? <laughs> and it's, it's electronic music yeah. and it's a lot of lights and it's goofy and I just play like bad electronic music, like four on the floor, that kind of thing. And I think I was playing Dead Mouse's Strobe, like a version of it, and... I remember seeing her do this, but she was standing in front of the speaker and just, <laughs> I had two subwoofers and a speaker and she was just standing in front of it. And I just saw her like go inside herself and start staring into oblivion and like <laughs> bend over and just open her hands and receive, receive uh, dead music, awesome. receive the dead mouse. And it, I could just watch her mind being like blown wide open. And wow. she came after and she's like, I had it. <laughs> I had deep joy. Thank you, Mr. Hindenburg. And I was like, I got all I was doing was pressing buttons, but it can come anywhere. So shout out to that girl if she's listening. What about you, Bees? So um, I've asked you for this. I've wanted to learn about Deep Joy for a long time, and you said, no, wait for the podcast, and so then here well, I am. Well, it's, 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 you have, to be clear, I'm not a cruel person. It was, can I sit in on your Deep Joy it lecture in class? And I said, no, no because, because your presence would 
any any other person's presence in an English class changes, changes the, class. the atmosphere of an English Which class. Which we know because so. you, you let me come to another one of your classes, and then it changed the discussion in that class. So sorry about that. Um, uh, yes, my, uh, my first reaction to it was um, um, when I was saved, um, and I was at a camp. But it wasn't related to nature. Is that important to no, the deep joy? Um, historical. Was so, it related to Dead Mouse? Yeah, it was. In fact, so, yeah. In I repented of listening to Dead Mouse. Is what in, I'm trying. I'm in usual it. romanticism, it's either nature, art, music. Those tend yeah, to be music, the three things. Yeah. And I'm going to end the podcast by some words of warning of what it isn't, because there's lots of students get that get confused about other things. Anyway, but we'll sorry. So the, the one I was. Um, um, I went to a, it was a camp for incoming freshmen going to the University of Texas at Austin. It's called Ignite. If you know anyone going, it's ignitetexas.org. Please sign up. Um, and so. Uh, and it's not a convention for arsonists. It is not, though. That would be much more fun. Um, we, we do have funny fire related stories, but I can't share those on a podcast. Um, so uh, um, my first experience of sorrow over my sin, repentance over that sin. And then there was a worship um, uh, service right after that, that it was all of all of us incoming freshmen coming together. And it was just like, I don't know, it was the most freeing, like outside of time. Like, I don't know, it was just really powerful. Um, that was the first one that came to mind. But then when you talk about nature, um, I was thinking about um, um, when I got married, um, Sarah and I went off for our honeymoon, went to Costa Rica and I was in charge of some of the scheduling and I was really bad at it. And so I scheduled us to be this entire day in this little surf town called Tamarindo. And like, uh, this was a horrible idea because there's like three things to do in Tamarindo and like none of them require the entire day. And so, you know, 30 minutes into our eight hour day, it's like, oh no, we have all this time to fill. And so we're walking around and I'm kind of grouchy because it's my fault that I planned really poorly. But we, um, we found this little restaurant that um, had seats on the beach and they served us guanabana, which is this delicious like uh, fruit, just a, like a fruit smoothie. And we just like sat on the beach and like... I don't know. Like it, it suddenly no longer mattered that there how much time that there was left there, and we there were just go. like outside of that, and it was the two of us together, and I don't know. Yeah, um, I never. Yeah, I, I remember another one I had it swimming in the Red Sea in Israel. Like we had, it was a crazy, crazy trip, and they had our time booked solid. And I think we actually had to refuse to go do some other activity. They were everybody was going scuba diving, and we decided not to, but to go down to the beach and swim in the Red Sea. And I remember just it was just peaceful. Yeah. It was really nice. Um, yeah, so what we do, there are some th words of caution that I give to my students because there are some things that this isn't. Um, a lot of students say, oh, it's like falling in love. Mm. But falling in love with another person is not the same thing as deep joy. That's a different kind of emotional response altogether. Uh, this romantic deep joy that we're talking about is a means uh, I'm even convinced that God has created it into the fabric of creation as a means to an end, that another avenue for the soul to know that it wants to get to God is having the experience of transcendentalism in beauty. Um, and so deep joy is a means to an end, which is God. A human person is never a means to an end. Like the relationship that you have in falling in love is not for, you don't fall in love because of, so because it's your soul's satisfaction. I mean, it's it's a different thing. Loving somebody else is not the same thing as deep joy. So I, I caution my students with that. Um, the other thing is, uh, and I was even thinking about this when you were talking about the student who was having the experience at the dance party. Knowing that student, that student was not on illegal or illicit substances. No. But, um, 
but for the this for um, this experience of beauty is I uh, and the, and the and having the feeling of beauty fade away and then a desire to fill that void does mean that like the the romantic heart is one that is more predominantly predisposed to wanting to fill it with substances. I mean, this is we talk about the. You know the punk rocker or the rock and roller who you know lives a life of debauchery and, and substance abuse, and a lot of that is because of this this feeling of 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 beauty and and that they must have had that moment on the stage where they felt alive, and then they don't feel it again, and then uh, they sort of numb that pain or that sort of angst or the desire for it. Another word of warning is that this is also uh, ripe for idolatry, and it, you were hinting at it with pantheism and polytheism that. Um, you begin to worship nature. Um, C.S. Lewis called the Romantic poets that they worshipped a spilled religion, that they began to worship nature and deep joy as itself a god, and that they were sad that that god had rejected them and they needed to do something to get it back, a sacrifice, perfect living, some kind of thing to get the feeling of deep joy back, when in reality, it was not a god. It was almost like a... um, uh, you know, uh, a force or a dem- or uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody pointing the soul's um, desires back to God, uh, its source. A magnetism. Yeah, or even Lewis, I think, when he's doing Narnia and he has like the the dryads and naiads and these sort of river gods and 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 um, um, and wood gods and um, all worshiping Aslan. And the, and some of the, the 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 kids can find find Aslan because they're drawn to the beauty of the nymphs that take them to to Aslan where everyone's sort of anyway, um, so yeah, so those are just sort of some words of caution. How romanticism sort of played itself out in history is also kind of like a misunderstanding of human nature. Um, um, these are the conclusions that they drew. Oh, I want nature itself. Uh, as opposed to God, um, and sort of one of the the hangovers or the carryovers that we have of Romanticism in the modern world is this strong emphasis on your own individual experience, um, your own individual experience that supersedes um, like common humanity, uh, and the idea that um, the happy person is the genius, mm. the person from whom they can. Um, um, give voice to their own inner experience in order to um, in order to uh, uh, make deep joy exist. And I never realized this until I began, until I had sort of gone through Romanticism. I did my master's degree in C.S. Lewis's book Till We Have Faces, which is one big story about how the soul has dealt with deep joy and how it finds God at the end. That's maybe that's a whole other podcast, but anyway. Um, and it wasn't until I went back and I read in the classical world, in the classical world, you often get philosophers and writers talking about the seductive dangers of poetry. And I think what they mean is that, um, writing poetry and D de- and just sort of living in the world of beauty divorced from reason or divorced from um, uh, philosophy um, from philosophy can um, be just like a sticky sweet cut
hovering over our soul's desire for God. Now, they wouldn't have framed it in our soul's desire for God, but it can be like a seductive force that numbs us to um, the work of soul betterment. Um, um, it, uh, uh, and so we can get lost in, in the sort of the sad songs of the poets um, and sort of and not have the, um, the sort of sober-minded, clear thinking of the philosophers that is also needed. Like Lewis needed both. He needed the experience of beauty, but then he also needed his questions about God answered satisfactorily. Yeah. And he got that when he talked to Tolkien. Um, and I think every soul needs to have, like the soul's conversion needs to be both of those things. It needs to have the desire for God that is felt in the heart, but it also needs to have the settled questions of the mind as well. Um, and if, if only one happens, if only your brain is baptized, but your heart is not, then you are just going to know the right answers, but mm. not care. If only your heart is baptized, but your brain is not, it's like the, the, uh, this, the, you know, the seed that sprouts up quickly, but has no root. And then when the sun scorches it, it melts away. Um, uh, I think that's, that's true. It's sort of, if it's just a emotional conversion and not a, uh, a, a sort of a, a soul's conversion, uh, you have this kind of problem. Um, anyway, so romanticism, so even though I talk, I wax poetically about it and I find it very fascinating, the more I've taught it, the more I've thought about it, the more I realize that it is a, it is halfway there. And, uh, uh, and it is not the entire story of the soul's experience and then the soul sort of reality, um, that, and that it, um, it's kind of this dangerous thing, right? Like I realize this as I teach this to students, like I am giving language and voice and to an experience that they've had, which is good. I want them to know that what their heart is longing for is relationship with Christ, which is true. Not all students buy it yet. Um, and I know that, you know, that, that, that can get, because it, you, you see that playing out in people's lives is that they have their souls awakened to hunger and desire, and then they go off searching for the fulfillment of that desire. Um, and they can go off in all sorts of different wrong directions. Uh, I struggle sometimes with thinking, is it better just to keep them numb and not thinking about it? Or... I think it's you, better to warn them that where it's coming from. Exactly. Otherwise, they're going to feel and, it and, and you do. follow whatever. And, right. and, and you do. And, you, and, yeah. and, and I do. Um, whether or not that advice is always heeded, of course, right. I mean, this is, and you know, uh, I want to have control over their lives, which I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. but, you, but, you know, and faith is a long journey and you hope that they yeah. get there eventually. But it is a little bit of uh, the dangers of education, which is you are increasing their potential, which could also be a bad thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. We should... Draw this to a close. Yeah, um, I can. Great. I know I what I up. want you to read. Uh, yeah, for I'm gonna. I'm book. gonna read it. So Donaldson and I have had long discussions about whether poetry is a good thing or not. I am. There are certain poets that I like, and I can recognize really good poetry. I I land on the side that poetry is, and I'm I'm landing on the same side that Plato landed on. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> that poetry is dangerous and. I think the ease of entry into the art form means that there is far more bad poetry out there than good. And it's it's easier to write than a long novel. It takes less work, which means a lot of amateur writers make really bad poetry. But I don't disagree with that. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's prevalent. There's a lot of bad, there is some good stuff. I can recommend good poets, but there's a lot of bad too. And I was going to read this about 
It's from Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which we've been said we were going to tackle and I've been trying to read. So far, it's pretty good. And he is in jail and he's talking to Wisdom, Wisdom the Goddess. They're having a conversation. She shows up and he's kind of spaced out for a while. And then she kind of tries to snap him out of it. And as she approaches, this is kind of what she says. As she caught sight of the muses of poetry standing by my bed, giving me words to suit my tearful mood, the lady was angry for a moment and her eyes flashed with savage fire. She spoke, who let these whorish stage girls come to see a sick man? It's more pain they bring than remedies. No, they make things worse with their sweet tasting poison. These are the kind of women that choke off a mind's rich fruit, wrapping it up in sterile thorns of passion. They make a mind more used to disease instead of setting it free from pain. If you were trying to seduce a common man with your enticements, as you usually do, it wouldn't bother me so much. But then you would not be damaging my work. That's good. I mean, because if you just gave, if you just left students thinking that the intensity of feeling mm. is an end, yeah. then you get stupid things like the ending of uh, Dead Poets Society, where they're all standing on their desks, you know, with their romantic feelings to their teacher or whatever. Romance in terms of deep feeling, right? Like if 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 deep feeling is an end, then. I think the person who thinks that just f deep feeling is an end is someone who is, is in despair. And I think that's yeah. that's what philosophy is telling Boethius here, that like you are in a dark place, you're in a dungeon, and you're trying to console yourself with, with sweet music and poetry. That's not going to do it. That's the wrong medicine. Well, and even and I, they were suiting his mood. So yeah. he was depressed. He was reading depressed poetry. And our students do the same thing. Yes. When you are feeling music. bad, you listen to sad, depressing music. Right. And... That isn't helpful. That's not it a remedy. It feels it's like a, a, somewhat of a consolation, a wallowing, uh, a sinking down into this thing, a burrowing into their sort of like sad blankets of comfort, but it's not. It's not. And I, I think even after listening to a bunch of artists talk about the, I listened to a podcast called Song Exploder, where artists talk about the way they make music. And one of the things they talk about is having to feel things more extremely <laughs> and sort of wallow in that feeling. But Almost oh, wow. ubiquitously, it's a bad experience. Yeah, right. It damages them, mm -hmm. right? They have to feel pain and continuously feel pain to try to make their music. And I don't think that's helpful for the human person. Just like if you just went through a breakup, listening to breakup songs is not good for you. And this is what, this is the the temptation of poetry. And, the, and I think now the temptation of music, music. and of movies mm -hmm. is to wallow, right? Mm -hmm. I, I had just broken up with a girl in college and... We were on a road trip and I, I got sick and so I stayed back and watched Love Actually. Oh, dude. Oh, man. Man, if you're looking for a way to just straight up bum yourself out, that is, That's the way to that go. is a way to do it. So my solution is always like if you're feeling the, the desire, the, the, the lack, if you're, if you're feeling that haunting of, the, of, of deep joy, like make your bed, make yourself some eggs, go for a walk. Do something physical, read a great book, hang out with friends, like live good, the good life as opposed to sort of just wallow in the... Yeah, don't, don't go seek poetry. And if you're feeling bad, maybe listening to sad music isn't the way to solve yourself or even trying to force yourself to listen to happy music because it doesn't mm -hmm. apply, right? Practice philosophy. Remind mm -hmm. yourself that they're like time heals wounds. Mm -hmm. Remind yourself to that wallowing in an emotion is probably not a healthful thing to do. And yeah, go ride, ride a bike, take a walk do something useful, have a conversation with a friend, right? The, this is practicing philosophy and it's more helpful to the soul than maybe wallowing in poetry. And, and, if, and if your soul is in that wallowing place, like it wants relationship with God, 
And that's what it wants. And so, I mean, so take internal stock of yep. your own soul to see if you are far from him because... And prayer. Prayer always helps. Because the consolation that comes through the poets is a false one. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, that's good. That's drawing it to a close. This has been... Oh, you opened, right? So oh, you get a close? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm so, sorry. I didn't mean to steal no, your totally thunder. Uh, yeah, this has been Classical Stuff. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, hey, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Um, that would mean a lot to us. Uh, if you have any ideas for topics, um, any uh, anything you want to send us, classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. We're on Twitter at C-L-S-S-C-A-L-Stuff. At cl- at classical stuff, and um, Twitter is just a hotbed of deep joy. No, I'm kidding. Is it? No, <laughs> it's literally the exact opposite. It sounds it's miserable. I, yeah, I have a personal Twitter. I never use it. It just makes me sad. Um, I think that's everything. So thank you all for joining us, and uh, we will talk with you again soon. Cool. Bye. Thanks. And bye. bye. bye.